Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the Editor-in-Chief of the Network, and today I'm very happy to say that we will be talking to Tom Carhart about his terrific book, The Golden Fleece, High-Risk Adventure at West Point. I've gotten to know Tom a little bit over the last several months, and he is a terrifically interesting person. He's a very accomplished author. He's a veteran himself, and he's a graduate of West Point. And in this book, he tells us a pretty fascinating and, and sometimes actually poignant tale about some guys who stole a goat. Is that a fair characterization, Tom? Yeah, the, but the goat was, this is, the metaphor is important. Well, this, the goat was the mascot. It's not just a goat. Nope. The highly protected golden, and horns painted gold and blue in stripes and kept in a special pen and the most protected uh, situation in the U.S. Navy. Right. This is the, this is the most highly guarded thing the Navy has, ha, had. And well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the highest security installation is the Severna Park Naval Security Station in Maryland across the river from Annapolis. And it's two concentric 10-foot anchor fences with barbed wire guarded gates guarded by Marines 24-7. And we had to get past those two fences in order to get to where the goat was kept. And that was behind the main shore patrol uh, guard post and the for the, uh, the in, covering the inner gate. Mm-hmm. And you did it. You got the goat. But well, before we, we go it, there, yeah. right, before we go that you got the goat, before we go there, um, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, I graduated from West Point in 66. I uh, got shot up in Vietnam, got out, got, went to law school for free, got a degree from the University of Michigan. I was the editor of a tax uh, journal, European Taxation, in Amsterdam. Then I worked for the Rand Corporation in Santa Monica, California. Then I went back to Europe and worked for the Archibald Law Firm, representing multinational corporations in front of the European Economic Community, which is the predecessor to the European Union. Uh, I came home because of a death in the family, was a small-town lawyer in Amherst, Massachusetts for a year, uh, and then uh, got Potomac fever and moved to Washington and worked for the government. Actually, I got married, and we moved to Washington, and we lived there 25 years. 17 of those I worked for the government. The other I was working for what they call Beltway Bandits, outside corporations that do contractual work for the government. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, about 10 years ago, uh, I uh, moved to Massachusetts with my wife and son, and uh, I'm happy to be ensconced in Western Mass right now. Happier than a clam. Good. Well, you missed one important thing. I don't know if it's important. You consider it important. Maybe you don't. At some point, you picked up a Ph.D. from Princeton. Yeah, I did. I did. I did. I, that was sort of, yeah, I caught up in, 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 the, in the 90s and went back to graduate school, and yeah. I got a Ph.D. in American and military history from Princeton. Now, actually, I had a couple of books published by then, and, uh, you know, I've loved writing more than anything, but I'm not an educated writer. I was an engineer at West Point, uh-huh. so this has all been catch as catch can. I've read, you know, I we, we read one Shakespeare play at West Point. Guess which one? Julius Caesar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> right. So whatever else I've read of Shakespeare or anything else, I've had to do on my own. 
and uh, I've been very lucky. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I, I've, I've been able to, to have a number of, well, actually, this is my ninth military history book, though this is a farce. The others are straight military history that'll put you to sleep unless you're interested in one aspect of the Civil War and so on. But this book is just a farce. This is this is uh, fun fun to live and fun to write, and just a delight. It's the kind of thing you jump in your, the air and click your heels together laughing all the time. Right. Because we really pulled something off that was uh, extraordinary. It was extraordinary. I think. And, well, this leads right into my next question. Why did you write this book? Uh, I wrote this book basically because, now, we have to understand, uh, the class of 66 at West Point is just another class. We graduated into Vietnam. When we, before we graduated, we knew we were going to go to Vietnam. And uh, 579 graduated, uh, 30 of us were killed in Vietnam, about another 150 were wounded. And so we know we've got a grim uh, reality confronting us. And before we uh, went to that, we we shouted our last hurrah to America in stealing the Navy goat, and uh, you know we we went out with a bang, not a whimper. It was it was a wonderful uh, summation of four arduous years at West Point. Now, why did I write the book? I, to tell the story, basically, uh, it's it's been smothered and covered up. It's really just a farce. It's an adventure. It was a high risk, but nobody died, nobody bled. There were no no uh, uh, no trauma, no crimes, other than abducting the goat from its legitimate owner, the Marines at Zawarna Park Naval Security Station. But even so, that was a challenge. Now, in 1954, both campuses, Annapolis and the, 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 the Naval Academy of Annapolis and the Military Academy at West Point, are open federal institutions, or they were before 9-11. That means the gates were never closed. There was a guard at the gates for directions mostly, but you didn't have to pass a pass to get on post or nothing. Uh, so at night, the guards went home, and one a week before the Army-Navy game in 1954, a group of cadets went to Annapolis, and at 2 a.m., they drove under the open campus, found the goat, the cage where the goat was being kept unguarded, broke into the cage, and took him back to West Point. There's big uproar after that, big publicity. Uh, uh, it was in all the papers and so on. And this is back when the Army-Navy became was a big deal, back in the 50s. And so thereafter, the superintendents of both academies said, uh, you know, we, we, we won't do this again, gentlemen's agreement. And the Naval Academy then, for the open weekend, before the Army-Navy game, it's an open weekend for both teams, they took the, the GOAT to the Severna Park Naval Security Station, the highest security installation in the Navy, and put him in a special pen behind the main guardhouse inside the second most of the concentric fences and so on. I mean, they couldn't have <laughs> made him more heavily guarded, I don't suppose, with two Marine guards there 24-7 in the guardhouse. So uh, it was a, a challenge, and they, they said to us, the superintendent said, uh, do not go near Annapolis. If you're within 50 miles, we'll fry you alive and so on. All sorts of threats. But there was no honor offense involved, and they weren't going to kick us out. So our, our attitude was, don't go there. Oh, yeah? Watch this. <laughs> Catch us if you can. <laughs> and they did eventually, but not until after we got the goat back to West Point. They mm -hmm. caught the goat. Just before we but, go on, why, why wasn't there an honor offense here? Well, you take that stuff pretty seriously our, at West we, Point, yeah. Well, we, absolutely. But we were not. We did not give our word that we wouldn't do that. I see. And now, now there are certain things that are honor offenses. Uh, for instance, if if you fail 
to to acknowledge that you're authorized to do something. This is old uh, marking your card in your rooms and all sorts of things. There can be there can be honor offenses of commission and omission, and you can do what's known as quibbling, which is, you know, what does thus mean, thus or therefore. And and those are honor offenses. This was not an honor offense because we never gave our word that we would not uh, trespass and so on or go to a certain place. If we had done that, then it would have been an honor offense, but mm-hmm. we didn't. We're very careful about that because you can get kicked out, bingo, for yes, an offense. You're yes, gone. Yes, that's what I understand. So let's we're be- going to risk that. Let's begin to tell the story, and let's begin by uh, uh, giving us the cast of characters. Can you tell us a little bit about the people who are involved sure. in this caper? Sure. This, 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 this happened in the fall of 1965. I was in the hospital with, I don't know, the flu or something, with a guy named Dean Klinos who was my classmate. I was in company E2. He was in company K2. The 2,500 cadets then at West Point were broken up into 24 companies, about 100 men in each company. And those are just designations. That, that doesn't really mean anything. The cadets were all the same in each each company. They're just administrative, uh, where, where, you, where you sleep, where you, who you march and parades with, and how you're organized and so on. So, we, he and I agreed, you know, before we go out, we're going to Vietnam, we ought to steal a Navy goat. What the hell? The, the, <laughs> the mission impossible. They say we can't do it. Let's do it. So we started spreading word, and within about a month, we had eight guys. And of those eight men, the, now I don't want to name them yet, because when we went down to Annapolis and we're, we're going to steal the goat, um, I got there late, and when a, with another guy, we went on a recon run. We got through the first fence with our Army ID cards, because all people in the military in those days had a green ID card. And when the Marine guards waved us in, they looked at the card, but on the line where it says rank, it says Cadet USMA rather than Private USMC. So he just assumed we were Marines, short hair, young guys, looked at the cards and waved us in. But we're not going to get through the second gate like that. So we drove to the second gate and then made a turn and drove around the inner fence and found a pedestrian gate. And it, as it happened, the padlock was through the hasp, but it was not locked. We had both, both, cut, both cut cutters. We were ready to cut it, but we didn't have to. So we lifted the lock out of the, out of the door, of the, the gate. It was a pedestrian gate, uh, and we opened the gate, and we went in a couple hundred yards, and we could see, if we went over a little rise, we could see the backside of the Shore Patrol headquarters where the goat was. So we went back out the gate, closed it, looped, put, put the lock back in place, and then went back to our base camp, which was the, the home of one of our classmates nearby, one of the eight of us. And when we got there, this guy, let's call him Mr. Smith, not his name, was a school teacher, and he said, boys, before you do this, and he called us boys, but that's okay. <laughs> we were 21, 22. He said, boys, before you do this, you should know that the guards on that inner gate have orders to shoot to kill if you if they catch trespassers in there. And I don't think you should do this. I think it's crazy and dangerous, and you shouldn't take this risk. So of the eight of us, two guys, his son and another guy, decided they didn't want to do this. It was too high a risk. So now it's down to six of us. And... Among the six, Mike Brennan and, and Mike Brennan and Mike Mawinney both had girlfriends. Mike Brennan's wife, wife-to-be, Helen, was there, and she had a friend who was a blind date, I think, for Mike Mawinney, Judy something. 
I, I don't remember. And uh, so we went out in the front yard, the, the six of us and the two women, we put our hands in the center and said, one for all, all for one, and we took off. Now, the deal was we would get inside, five of us would get inside the second fence. One guy would stay in the car between the first fence and the second fence with the car running and the lights out, our getaway car. Five of us went through the gate, and then we proceeded to a hilltop a couple hundred yards away in the woods from which we could see the back of the the Marine Shore Patrol hut, uh, maybe a couple hundred yards away down a slope. And at, at 1225, right on dot, the two girls showed up in a station wagon at the innermost gate and started crying. And the two Marines came out, and they flirted like crazy with them for 20 minutes, or I don't know. Anyway, when the two Marines came out and approached the the station wagon, we swooped down that that hill and got to the goat cage, not 20 feet behind the Marines and the girls, but they were so distracted. 1235, a cold November night, and what are they going to do? 20-year-old Marine guards in here, two beautiful women, and so on. Well, while they occupied them, we broke the padlock with a crowbar. We didn't need the bull snips. And then we went into the cage, got ropes around over the, the the goat's horns and head, and then took him out the gate. And he thought he was going to a football game. He ran with us, and we went back to the old gate. Mike Mawinney is the guy who put the, the padlock back in the hasp, so they didn't know the goat was gone till the next morning about 10 o'clock. They thought he was sleeping in the hut. And, in fact, we had taken him through that gate, out the other pedestrian gate, and into the car where Bob Lowry was waiting. Now, let me go over the, the names here. Bob Lowry mm-hmm. was the guy who stayed in the cadet car, and he was he was, he was was a senior cadet. He was a regimental adjutant or something with stripes down his arms. Three of the guys were cadet company commanders, which is a big deal, cadet captains. One guy was a cadet lieutenant, Mike Mooney, and I was a cadet sergeant, Tom Carhart. The three company commanders were Mike Brennan, uh, Dean Klainos, and uh, Art Mosley. And... Mike Mooney was a cadet lieutenant. I was a cadet sergeant. Bob Lowry's a high-ranking cadet. He's he's got the getaway car. So we got on the highway. We went back to the home, our base camp, and the goat, meanwhile, had had dumped his alimentary canal. How do I politely say this? All <laughs> over the inside of the car, you know. And he had, he had, it, and so what we decided is two guys will ride with the goat, and the rest of us will be in the station wagon behind us with with the girls with with. with uh, the, the larger crew. So we started north, and the next morning, about 6 a.m. or 7, we're on the New York State Thruway, about an, uh, an hour west, uh, no, 20 minutes west of West Point, and we're heading north, and the goat car is out in front. We're going to Eagle Mills, New York, where my grandmother has a farm, and we're going to take the goat there. They're ready for it. It's about an hour from west, north of West Point, outside of Troy, New York. So as we're driving north, the station wagon threw a rod. It exploded and ground to a halt and pulled over to the side of the road, blowing the horn, and the goat car in front of us just kept going. But they don't know where to go. So so two of us, Art Mosley and I, hitchhiked, got out of the car, went across some pastures, hitchhiked back to West Point, walked around the barracks and found a guy, John Ford, who had a girlfriend there with a car. We got him up, got her out of the hotel, got in the car. We went back, and we started north on the New York, New York Thruway. And at the next rest stop, there they were with the goat grazing along the highway. And they didn't know what had happened. This is before cell phones. They had no idea where we were. 
So we picked them up, took them up to Grandma's farm, put the goat in the barn, and came back to West Point. Now, over the next several days, there was a big uproar because what we did is we were able to, this is before Xerox or anything else, we went down to the bands, the West Point band building down below the plane, and they had a mimeograph machine. And we wrote a piece, on a piece of paper, we wrote a statement to the Corps of Cadets, we've got the goat, if you know us, don't say anything, the tactical <laughs> department's after us, keep your mouth shut. And we and we went in and put a, 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 one of these uh, uh, flyers on almost every table in the mess hall about 11 o'clock, so everybody saw it at lunch. And there was an uproar at lunch, but who's got the goat? Nobody knew. Now, we had, as it turned out, the, the way West Point is structured, uh, there's a, the superintendent runs the whole school. A dean, who is a brigadier general, runs the academic side, and the commandant of cadets runs the military side, because it is, after all, a military organization. He's a brigadier general, and he's the man. So, and under him, there are four colonels who each run a regiment, and after this flyer came out, the four colonels had a meeting, and the general, the brigadier general, who was the commandant, was Richard P. Scott. He had an aide-de-camp, which is a very prestigious post. His aide-de-camp was a young captain named Tom Carney. Three years earlier, he had been my cadet company commander, so I knew him personally. And so on Monday, I went to his office, and the commandant's office was right there in the central area, in the area of cadets. I went in and spoke to his secretary, knocked on his door or something, and he said, what, what, what's the matter, Tom? Something's going on? And I said, sir, i got a personal problem. And he said, okay, come on. And he took me to his office, closed the door, and he said, what's up? Is this a woman? And I said, no, sir. And he said, you didn't steal the goat. You're not one of those guys, are you? And he laughed. <laughs> and I said, yes, sir, I am. And he said, what? And I said, yes, sir, I'm one of the goat thieves. And he said, okay, stay here. And he got up and he left, and he came back two minutes later with a sergeant major. And he said, Tom, this is Sergeant Major Woods. From now on, he knows everything I know. Okay, you talk to him. Don't talk to me. And he'll, communi he'll communicate to me, but we can't directly interface. And I said, okay. And then I went down to Sergeant Major's office, and he had a window that looked out over right, an area where all cadets came back from, from class, um, uh, right on the edge of Central Area, or most cadets came back from class. And he said to me, now, look, I've got a little beat Navy sign here. If I put it in my window, you'll see it when you come back from class. That means call me. My extension is 5677 or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. Okay? So I said, great. Monday afternoon, no sign. Tuesday morning, there's a sign. So I called him, and he said, the, the, the tactical officers believe they know who it was. It was a group of guys in company I-1. And several tactical officers have said, this is it. They know who it is, and they're going to conduct a raid tonight, and they're going to hit all those guys and confront them. And he said, it wasn't I-1, wasn't it? I said, no, sir, it's not I-1. He said, good, let him go. So, no, actually, this is the sergeant major. <laughs> so they did I-1, and they were wrong. So next day, no signs. That was a Tuesday, Tuesday afternoon. Maybe it was Wednesday. There's a sign in his, in his uh, window. So I call him up, and he said, we got a problem. Uh, the commandant, the superintendent is furious because he's the guy, General Lampert. He'd made the agreement with the naval superintendent, we won't do this, and he thought he was in charge and he could control us. Ha! So, <laughs> so right. he, he wants to throw us out, the superintendent. He wants to find us and throw us out. Uh, and uh, so all of a sudden we're scared. 
well, not any more scared than we were before. But but still, he's after us. So tonight, the sergeant major said they're going to send tactical officers around to every cadet who was off post legitimately on that weekend and ask them if they know anything about the GOAT. And I said, but they can't do that. That's using their honor against us. And the sergeant major said, I know, but they're going to do it. Lampert is furious. The superintendent is furious. So... I said, I guess that means we better get the goat back. When you say when you say using your honor against them, what does that mean exactly? That means they're going to say, do you know anything about the Navy goat? Mm-hmm. And if you answer yes or no, if you lie, that's an honor offense and you're gone. They'll throw you out. You'll mm-hmm. be thrown out. Well, you, you, you know, it, it, we, we so strongly believed in this. This is something we absorbed. And you wouldn't do that because you know you'd have to turn yourself in for honor and you'd be gone. You, mm-hmm. you, you just don't. Cadets didn't lie. I know this sounds strange, but cadets routinely, and as a matter of course, there were no petty thieves or, or pickpockets or, or, mm-hmm. or uh, you know, it, there was, it, was a, it was a very important concept of personal honor. We trusted and believed in each other completely. So if, if, if an officer said to me, do you know anything about the Navy GOAT? I would either not answer or I'd have to say, yes, sir. Because if I say no, sir, that's a lie. Mm-hmm. You understand? I see, yes. So, you know, they're going to use your honor against you. They're going to, they're going to find, they're going to learn because lie, cadets aren't going to lie to them. Mm-hmm. And, they're, and they're going to come to us and they're going to ask us. So we better get the goat. Right. So we decided, okay, we'll get the goat. Now, I told you there were four colonels who were in charge of the regiments. And the colonels were all generals in waiting. Okay, they're all going to get promoted to general after this. That was the way it was at the time. Uh, there was a Colonel Mertens, Colonel uh, Morris, who later became the Chief of Engineers, three-star, Colonel Hamlin, who became a two-star, and I don't remember the other one. Anyway, Colonel Hamlin had been in Washington on business, and the other three regimental commanders had met and agreed they're going to confront everybody. So we're, it's complicated. You have to understand the way the area of barracks is constructed, but it's like an old castle. And you would leave or enter the castle primarily through what's known as sally ports, which are openings in the wall through which, in castle days, horsemen would ride out, sally forth to attack the surrounding enemy and so on. But anyway, so you, we were walking through the sally port in North Area, the Cow Sally Port, where you used to have grades posted. And it's 20 feet wide, 20 feet high, an arched entry through a wall, maybe 50 feet long, goes through the barracks. And we're walking through that that's lit, the six of us, when suddenly we hear, you man, halt, in a strong voice. And so we automatically locked our heels and halt. And we're wearing civilian clothes. And it's after tap, so we're illegal. We shouldn't, we're not allowed to wear civilian clothes. But we're walking out of the area of barracks wearing civilian clothes. And we get this, you men halt. And a guy comes up to our side and walks around us, and it's Colonel Hamblin. And he's wearing civilian clothes, too, because he just got back from Washington. But he's wearing a, a suit. And and he walks around us, he looks us up and down, and then he stops in front of us and he said, what do you men think you're doing? Now, Bob Lowry was the senior cadet, as a cadet regimental adjutant. And he said, he just automatically, and the senior cadet always answers when, when a group is asked by an officer. And so he, without without a thought, said, sir, we're going to Eagle Mills, New York, to get the Navy goat and bring him back to West <laughs> <laughs> And there was a silence. And Merton, uh, Colonel Hamlin, took another step or two, looked us up and down, and then he said, as you were, and walked away. <laughs> this is a future two-star general intimidated by a bunch of cadets. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was very cool. So we went and got the cadet, got the goat, and we brought him back. And 
at 5 a.m., about 5 a.m. Now, this is, we took him to the mule barn. There's a barn where the mules are, are, are kept, which is guarded. People live in there and everything else like a house. And that's where the veterinarian had his office. And he, we, Colonel Slinky, or Captain Slinky, had, had coached us on how to get the goat. And he was going to hide the goat for us in his, ba- in his personal bathroom in the mule barn. So until we going to give it to the football team at noon. So we took it in there at 5 a.m. It got taken, and we went back down to the Corps of Cadets, got dressed and went to class, even though we hadn't slept all night. And at mid-period, about 10 o'clock, we learned from from the sergeant major that they'd got the goat. Somebody turned us in, and there was a bunch of MPs up at the new barn, and they're forming a convoy, and so everything is, has fallen through the floor. So we have an emergency meeting of the six of us. What do we do? And several of us agreed, let's fall on our sword. Let's just tell the Corps, this is too big a deal not to let them know. And again, <laughs> you know, when you say something to when a cadet says something to another cadet, it, it's the truth and you believe it. You don't, you never question that. So we stood up on a Dempsey dumpster with a loudspeaker, a hand loudspeaker, as cadets came back from, from uh, class at about 1130 11:40. We got lunch in 20 minutes, and as they came down, we got the ple- we got we sent plebes out to herd people down in New South. Big rally about the goat, and there were you know five or six hundred cadets there out of the 2,500 coming back from class rowdy when we stood up in the dumpster and said we've got the goat, and they went crazy because they <laughs> believed us. We're the ones who stole the goat. Everybody knew, and and. Uh, and we said he's up in the mule barn right now, and some plebes started running up the the back road to go up the hill. And I said, no, no, it's too late. They got him. But we stole the goat, and we in your face and all that. So understand when we go to when we go down to Philadelphia, we're gonna we're gonna kick their butts, and that's because we overpowered them and stole the goat or whatever, whatever uh, throwaway lines were. And the core loved it. <laughs> that's just loved I it. Bet. And and so then we went to lunch, and and. Uh, uh, well, before we went to lunch, when we were on the dumpster, we're behind the uh, building one, which is the Commandant of Cadets headquarters on Central Area. And people, and it's four floors, and people are hanging out the windows all the way up four floors, mostly officers, watching us. What the heck? What is this? And uh, as we finished, Colonel Brakeiron, Lieutenant Colonel Brakeiron, that's not a Kafkaesque name. That no, that's really quite a name, name, I was going to say. Yeah, came down. He's the, He's the the officer in charge and he had a two dash one a pad of delinquencies in his left hand and a pencil in his right or a ballpoint pen and he said to us to me first because i was the the guy with the last figure he said i don't know who you men are or what you think you're doing but i'll have your names and companies and i said and i was very relaxed i said sure sir carhartt tm e2 and he started to write, and he couldn't write. He couldn't get the pen to write on the pencil. His hands were shaking. And and he said, how do you spell that? And I said, C-A-R. And he's doing this. He, he couldn't do it. Well, he finally did it. And and we were, we were smirking, you know, covering up our laughter. He was more scared than we were. So mm-hmm. he got all six of our names, and then he said, you'll hear from about this in due course. Well, okay. We Now, we thought, and then we went and the Navy, the played Navy, and it was a 7-7 tie. It was dismal. But before the game, on the far side, uh, the Naval Academy, the midshipmen unrolled a long sign at the bottom row that was maybe, you know, two feet high and 50 feet long. And 
they unrolled it and then they passed it up to, to, so that as it went up in the crowd, you could see it from across the field. And the first scroll said, for it is written with a colon. Mm-hmm. And then the second roll, r- roll said, thou shalt not steal. <laughs> so, you know, it was it was uh, it, it was, and they made a big deal when they came in. They brought they they had a big black sedan. They brought it to the middle of the field, and guys got out in civilian clothes with earplugs, as if they were you know Secret Service. Mm-hmm. And then they got the Navy goat out on our side and ran him across the field. Mm-hmm. Same Navy goat we'd stolen. <laughs> right, Billy the Fourteenth. So anyway. Uh, that, you know that that was that was the that was the beginning and the end. That was the whole farce. Now that's spread out in the book. I, I start with uh, swooping down the the hill and when the girls arrived, and then I tell stories about being a cadet in the sixties. Yeah, I'd like to actually talk about that. One one of the things that you mentioned that I think might be interesting for people is this system of demerits. You mentioned the fellow with the pad and your name. Can you talk yeah. a little bit about that? Yeah, uh, we don't we were, don't have that where I teach. Right, right. <laughs> when you're a cadet, I uh, wish we did. you know, you wear uniforms, they shave your head, they strip you naked, they throw you in a big pool and you sink or swim together. Now, the first the first eight, nine weeks, beast barracks is very difficult. Traditionally, always has been. And a lot of people wash out. They just this is not what they wanted. Uh, but thereafter, you are allowed when, when if your shoes if your shoes aren't properly shined and when you're a plebe, there are sophomores stationed at sally ports looking at your shoes and if he stops you and said your shoes aren't shined you get three demerits and or five demerits and two punishments or whatever and you're allowed so many demerits a month i think it was 20 or 25 after that for every demerit you're going to walk an hour of, of punishment tours and what that was Wednesday afternoon for two hours and Saturday afternoon for three hours, you would walk in central area with your rifle on your shoulder. First, you'd stand inspection in dress gray for the officer in charge, and then you would walk across the area back and forth with your rifle on your shoulder, no talking, no moving, steady steady pace, and, 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 and so on. And it's just an hour of tedium. And that was a punishment tour. I walked 108 hours, by the way, <laughs> in my four years. I'm a century man. But that's I assume that's not a record. I assume there are people that did more. <laughs> oh, there are guys who did 200. Yeah. There are plenty of guys. Oh, listen, I'm way down on the scale. There were, there were easily 20 guys in my class who had more than 100 hours out of uh-huh. 579. But yeah. we were the bad boys. Yeah. Well, that's not, that's not right. We, we, were, we, were, uh, we, we tested our limits, let's say. Yeah. So, uh, you know, in... in, in what would happen in a if you do something big and rotten and against the rules, like have a bottle of whiskey in your room, smuggle it, and you get caught? The standard punishment that is going to, for that is going to be twenty-two demerits, forty-four punishment tours, and two months special confinement. Which means you have to be in your room unless you're out on official business. You don't get the, any free time to do anything. Of course, we didn't have precious little free time anyway. That meant Saturday and Sunday sitting in your room. That was not fun. We didn't have TVs, nothing. So, uh, yeah, it was it was pretty grim. <laughs> mm-hmm. So we're going to get a lot of, if we get caught, we know. They're not going to kick us out, but they're going to give us uh, uh, a lot of demerits and a lot of punishment tours. And mm-hmm. that's okay, mm-hmm. you know, because we're graduating in June, and they had already they had already allowed us to choose our branch of duty and our first assignment. Now, I'd chosen infantry, and I was going to the 101st in Vietnam, 
after four months troop duty, uh-huh. as were three of the other six of us. Uh-huh. They, 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 they made you do a minimum of four months troop duty before you went to Vietnam. But this was at a time when the war was still new. Yeah. We were young. And there's always a cohort out of every generation that wants to fight. And sure. it's not so much that we wanted to fight, but we were trained professional soldiers. And if anybody should go, it's us. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. And, and we were, frankly, eager. Now, mm-hmm. we didn't know the full drama and turmoil of war yet. We would learn that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, as young, innocent men, that's what we wanted to do. That's We'd chosen to go to West Point. Now our country calls, and we're here. Mm-hmm. So that, that was a very common attitude am, among us. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was sort of a grim reality that awaited us. So before before we go off to war, let's steal a Navy goat. Let me come back to that grim reality. Uh, and and right. also, I must say, you know, that... that you know, you, you do want to practice your craft, whatever your craft is. And if it's being that's a soldier, right, you right. want to do it to show yep. that you can do yep. it. That, that makes perfect sense it. to me. Yeah. Watch me. Right, exactly. So what, what sort of punishment did they give you for stealing the goat? Well, uh, they, they, we expected. What happened is eventually we heard that we would be, we would have a special commandant's board that would also be a general court-martial, a special general court-martial. Now, that's because we were active duty in the military as cadets, and right. court-martial doesn't mean they're going to put us in jail or anything. It just means the way the thing is structured. Mm-hmm. So the special court, which they organized, consisted of four colonels. The two regimental commanders who did not command us personally, that is, Colonel Hamlin was one of our regimental commanders, I forget who the other one was. So the other two regimental commanders, Colonel Morris and Colonel Mertens, I think, were were on the board, and then two other colonels. And we were we thought nothing happened before Christmas. We called it got called in on December seventh or something, and uh, we reported to this board. We walked in one by one. We went by cadet rank. So Bob Lowry went first. Regimental adjutant, then the three company commanders, Mike, uh, Mike Brennan, uh, Dean Klainos, and Art Mosley, then the lieutenant, Mike Mooney, then the only sergeant, Tom Carhart. And we reported him, and the colonel said, All right, men, we're not sure to how to handle this. So, what we're going to do, we'd like you to tell us the whole story, but you can choose not to. We can't force you to. We, However, we're, we've, we've been assigned to, to assess your, what the situation and to recommend punishment to the commandant. And depending on what you tell us, that'll turn that'll change our recommendation. We'd like you to tell us everything, but you don't have to. Now we want you men to talk among yourselves, there's six of us, and when you decide what to do, you tell Jerry here and Jerry here was some major, Major Hankins, <laughs> who outranks us by ten years. Mm-hmm. You, say, you tell Jerry here and he'll come down and get us and we'll come back and we'll it will listen to you. And so they left and Jerry's outside the door and so we said, What are we gonna do? And and we all said, Hell, let's tell him. What do we got to lose? So we agreed, but then I became the spokesman. So even though I reported in last, when they came back, I was the guy in the middle with the. I drew a map on a piece of paper, and I had a pointer, and I had the mic. You know, I had the. I was the guy. So they came in and sat down, and I told them the whole thing. And as I'm telling them the story, you see, Jack Morris. I remember he just buried his head in his in his, his face in his hands. He just couldn't stop laughing. And his mother and, <laughs> You know they're they're you know they're trying to smother their laughter, but they're you know they're all West Point graduates, and this is the sort of thing that's that's as much storied. It's almost a fable. Let's steal a Navy goat. Nobody ever did. Well, they mm-hmm. did in '54 mm-hmm. with no guards, and now suddenly we've gone through the most you know highest security installation in the Navy, got the goat, got him away, and they never knew till the next morning. I mean, it was really quite a coup. So. 
when they finally finished, uh, we were dismissed, and they said, okay, you'll hear from the commandant in due course. A week later, we went and reported individually to the to the commandant of cadets, uh, General Richard P. Scott. And now the superintendent wants to throw us out, understand. He's the commandant's boss. But the commandant did not throw us out. He called us in individually, and he spoke to us. I was the last to go. And it was just very brief. He said... Uh, he said some very complimentary things. I'm not going to, I'm not going to belabor that, but, uh, uh, he said, you'll do very well in the army. I'd be proud to have you serve under me. And he said something else. that's very complimentary to West Point, West Pointers. He said, well done, which is an important, uh, term to West Pointers. It comes from, uh, an important, uh, thematic song and so on. Anyway. So, uh, what he did, he said, but I have to punish you. And, and so he removed our first-class privileges for two months, which is basically nothing, mm-hmm. like a slap on the wrist. <laughs> and so we rejoiced, and we, and you know, we walked away. And it was, it was a wonderful feeling of elation that can't be matched, mm-hmm. I believe. So mm-hmm. we had a very high Christmas day here. I bet you did. <laughs> let, let me ask this: my, my impression is that were cadets to steal the Navy goat this year and get caught as they inevitably must, um, that the punishment would be much more severe now, and you would get lots of talkings to about how dangerous what you had done was, and you would be kicked Probably. out. Yeah. <laughs> Probably. Why did, we wouldn't yeah. get kicked out. Wouldn't get kicked out. You don't no. think so? Oh, no, no, no. You have to understand, although the structure says you can't do this, and if, you catch, if we catch you, we will burn the hell out of you, they're not ever going to throw you out. Because mm-hmm. understand, this is an investment by the federal right. government. They got a lot of money invested in you. Mm-hmm. They'll kick you out for honor because you've broken the rules. But because you did something, you know, with brass balls that that every other West Pointer envies, they're not going to kick you out for that. See, this is precisely I mean, this is precisely what I'm getting to, Tom, right here. Because yeah. uh, why do you think that he, that is the, I guess it was a colonel, <laughs> said all these complimentary yeah. things to you? Yeah, general, general, yeah, yeah. Yeah, why did he say those complimentary things to you? Because I know that, you know, in my case, I served on a disciplinary board at a major university once. I didn't say very complimentary things to people who had violated the rules. No, but the rules were not the sort of, the rules were things like drinking on campus Mm -hmm. or stealing somebody's watch or whatever. It was not. It was not sneaking into the into the Valhalla of the enemy camp mm-hmm. and, and and taking their most treasured uh, sacred totem and taking it back to West Point as a symbolic. That that that's a triumphant act. Yeah. We we oh yeah you think you're good? Well, we went into your most sacred protected ground and stole your most most your holiest object and took it back to West Point. Yeah. And 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 that's what that's what we did. Uh-huh. We didn't commit a crime. Well, right. we broke those padlocks, maybe you know, but that 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 sort of thing. I'll tell you another thing too. The next morning, Mike Mawinney, one of our one of the six thieves, his father was a retired Navy admiral, and one of his father's classmates at the Naval Academy happened to be the chief of naval operations at the time we stole the goat, which means the four star who commands the whole Navy. And the day after we stole the goat, the next Sunday, they didn't discover it was gone till about 10 a.m. because the lock was still in the hasp. And some some people came to look at the goat, a, a, a guy and his wife and kids, and they went out and saw the lock is broken and the goat's gone. <laughs> so the chief of naval operations said to Mawini's father, listen, 
We're very worried about this because we don't know if it was West Point cadets. That's fine. We're worried that it might have been a distraction because the Soviets or somebody broke into our really important <laughs> stuff. And they're trying to mislead. So I got to know. I know you've got a son in the class of 66. Would you ask him and try to find out if it's cadets or Russians? Mm-hmm. And so Mike Mooney's father said, sure. And he called Mike and, and Mike said, Dad, uh, not only do I know, I'm one of the six. And we have yeah, to go. <laughs> And he said, don't worry, son, but when this comes out, the Navy's going to be filled with the name Mawinney again. <laughs> so yeah. so that was kind of a, a farce. Yeah, but the reason, the reason I'm pursuing this line is that, I, I don't know, my impression is that things have changed a little bit in the sense that uh, these sorts of hijinks, evidence as they are in the military context of sort of bravery yeah. and gumption and all these yeah. things, are not, we don't really have much stomach for them anymore. I could well, be wrong about that. I don't know. I mean, apparently no, I, I am. You know, I, I, I don't know because I, I have my own perspective. I suspect you're right. I just came back from a weekend at West Point signing books, and boy, things have changed a lot. Uh, things are very, very tight and by the rules, and the rules say this yeah. and, and all that. And, and I don't mean so much uh, uh, shining shoes as uh, they they are rigidly controlled. Uh-huh. And... My, I get the impression that if you break the rules under these circumstances, well, I don't know if they'd kick you out. Well, they might. They might. Yeah, things yeah. are much more serious. They are much more serious. I think. I think that's it's true. Not, it'd be interesting to hear from. Anymore. I'd be interested to hear from listeners about this who know these things. But let's go back to uh, 1965, 1966. Tell us what happened to the six, as you call them, thieves. <laughs> you mean in the real world? In the, well, yeah. I mean, they went out. Did we, all of them go on to Vietnam? Well, we to I mean, Vietnam. that kind of yeah, thing. We yeah, we went to Vietnam. All of us went to Vietnam. Two of us were infantry platoon leaders. We got three Purple Hearts among the two of us. And uh, it means we were wounded. Right. But nobody was killed. Uh-huh. We came back, and two guys stayed in the Army. Mike Brennan stayed in, and he was he got sent to Stanford and got two master's degrees. Very smart guy. He's teaching aeronautical engineering at West Point. And he wanted to be an astronaut. And he, he applied to be an astronaut at Stanford. And he got rejected, but it was very close. Mm-hmm. And the final guy pulled him aside and said, listen, you got two masters from Stanford. If you get a medical degree, you're a shoe-in. You'll be an easy <laughs> astronaut. So Mike went back to West Point, taught for another year, talked to his wife, and then he went to the head of ES and GS, Colonel Brofus, I think his name was, and said, sir, I want to go to medical school. Wow. And the guy was a, you know, a tough guy from the outside, but a big teddy bear. And eventually he worked it out so that Mike went to medical school. Wow at the University of Texas. Wow. And when he graduated, he applied to be an astronaut again, and he got rejected, (laughs) (laughs) which made his wife, hallelujah, Helen. Mm -hmm. Now, so he stayed in the Army for 20 years, got out, and he's got a successful practice as an ophthalmologist, I think, in North Carolina. Mm -hmm. Very happy, four kids. Uh, And that was Jason and, 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 well, Jason and Medea, the, 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 the two the two who ran the whole thing, and, mm-hmm. and Medea and her, her sister, who, who distracted the guards. Uh, uh, let me see. Bob Lowry stayed in the Army for 30 years. He's an engineer, built a bunch of bridges. Now he's the head of, he got a master's degrees from, I think, Cornell. I don't know, but a good school. And uh, now he runs logistics for Arlington, Texas, which is where Jerry Jones Stadium is and so yep. on. Art Mosley got an MBA from Harvard. Uh, made a lot of money building commercial housing in Alabama and in Florida. In the Atlanta Olympics, I think that was 94 and 98, he was one of the five or six guys who did that. 
he was in charge of acquiring, developing, and disposing of all sites that were used in the Olympics, stadia, swimming pools, uh, uh, basketball courts, and so on. He did the same thing in Rio de Janeiro in this past, in 1917, mm-hmm. and now in September 2017, he's in Korea because he's doing the Winter Olympics there. Wow. Um, the next guy would be, uh, let me see, Art Mosley, Bob Lowry, uh, Dean Klainos, who got a, an MBA from the University of Arizona, went to work in the computer business and eventually was one of the top five or six guys at Apple under Steve Jobs. Oh. Steve Jobs called him in and detailed him to take a team off off post or off uh, campus, off site, yep. and find a way for Apple to sell business machines instead of toys. And Dean did that with a dozen people. And after nine months, he came up with an answer and he basically saved Apple's toys. He turned them around. Mm-hmm. Now he started his own company. He's very wealthy. He lives in Portland, Oregon. He's mm-hmm. a big hotshot in the computer world. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dean Klainos, Mike, Mike Mawinney, uh, got an MBA from Harvard, worked for Goldman Sachs, then moved to Dallas, was a big banker. And then in his late thirties, he and some other bankers took a chance and started a company. And after a couple of years, they were successful. And what they do is they manage retirement accounts for big corporations yep. and they made a bundle of money. Mm-hmm. He is enormously wealthy. Mm-hmm. He he's the one guy who gives more than ten million a year to West Point, and he's going to give hundreds of millions in his estate. All sorts of stuff. Good he's the him. biggest donor to West Point in history. <laughs> so, and he's a great guy, but he's still yep. Mike. Yep. You know, and so these guys have all done very well. Yeah, I mean, this no is question. part of the reason I asked this question is that you know we had had the stereotype you get it from films mostly and books about the damaged Vietnam vet. Now, of yeah. course, people that graduate from West Point are slightly different; they're already an elite. But it seems That's to me you true. guys That's did true. you guys did pretty well. Oh yeah, but you see, there's there's an inherent political bias in any of this reporting on what do you want to make them look like. That's what you're going to want to make them look like. Poor, broken losers. Okay, they're poor, broken losers. Because that's what—that's the story you'll portray. That's what you'll tell in the paper, and that's what they become. Now, I'm not saying that there's an enormous bias for or against Vietnam veterans, but we're all aware that there's been there's been a heavy psychological burden on them as a class, because you know after the war, when the war was wrong and the American people turned against it and they hated it, but who do you how who do you target? Not Congress, who who basically ran the war. Mm-hmm. Not the president. You, you you target the individual veterans, even though they made no choice. They mm-hmm. were just there doing their duty. They're attributable because they're wearing a uniform, uh-huh. so they can be spat upon. Uh-huh. So yeah, we had some bad bad experiences after the war, but you know, we're all healed over, scarred up. I'll tell you another thing too. Uh, did we acquire anything out of stealing the Navy goat for the rest of life? You bet. I bet that you was did, a yeah. very high risk venture. <laughs> yeah. When we were young men, we could have been killed. Well, we didn't. You could have been. You could have been. I think you could. We could have been. We could have been shot, yeah. like that guy said. You know, right. but we were so young. You know, we didn't recognize our own mortality. They'll right. never get me. They'll get somebody else. Right. And that's the way you feel in war, too. I mean, you know, you don't worry about that. Oh, they only wounded me. They didn't kill me. Now, you know, I mean, that's all. This is all rationalization. Uh, so, you know, we, 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 we were basically, West Point cadets are a self-selected group, and out of that group, we had six more, well, eight self-selected, out of which two backed out when they realized they might get shot. Right. So it was not, down, not a dumb thing. Of six. <laughs> Sorry? I said it's not, not a dumb thing to think that you might get shot. No, yeah. no, and no, it was, it was a smart thing to <laughs> yeah, do. Yeah, I think so. Thing to do, but we were... 
you know, we're wild-eyed cadets. What are they going to do? Sure. We're going to Vietnam anyway. Right, right. sure, sure, <laughs> sure, sure. Well, before we close, let me ask you a couple more questions. One is, I, I, I just feel kind of compelled to ask this because, you know, there's a lot, Vietnam is very much in the news these days where there's a 50th sure. anniversary of the big build of the big year of uh, 67, and there's a Ken Burns documentary just coming out. I haven't seen it. I probably suspect you haven't either. But I just wondered if you had any thoughts on your service in Vietnam. Yeah, I guess I do. Uh, and, and and I've washed and waxed and waned on this and washed back and forth. Uh, I'm very proud of my service. I think the Vietnam War was one of the most biggest political mistakes America's made, certainly in the 20th century, beyond Korea. And and uh, we're repeating, it seems to me, we're repeating those sorts of mistakes and fighting political wars, but that's way over my head. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to get into that. All I know is that my country is at war, and I was a West Point graduate, and no one should have gone before me. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I don't mean to be a hero. I mean to right. be a, a, a body. You know, who, who's going to go there? Who's going to be the cannon fodder? Well, me. Mm-hmm. That's what we were trained for. Mm-hmm. And you send your smartest men to the infantry. You don't spend your dolts because the <laughs> smartest men are going to yeah. they're going to they're going to accomplish a mission and keep people from getting killed. Right. You send stupid people, you get a lot of people killed. Right. Well, that's an aside. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm very proud of my service, but but you know I can only celebrate that among other veterans. And even then, it's a little uneasy. We're getting old. Yeah, I've been yeah. to reunions of the 101st at Fort Campbell, and I've been back to West Point. And, you know, there's an easy calm and comfort between us. We don't have to say, remember when, or anything like that. Uh, it's just, we, we know, and we're among our brothers, and, you know, it's fine. But on the outside world, I don't ever talk about Vietnam. Yeah. Nobody cares. Yep. Well, well I think I think a lot of people actually care. Yeah, but I imagine you're a little bit well, tired of talking they, about it. They suppress it or they yeah. turn the page. That's painful. Let's not deal with that. Yeah, no, a lot of we made a lot of mistakes culturally, socially, politically in Vietnam, and now you know in 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 the the residue is some broken, twisted bodies. Uh, the the people who served and got shot up or psychologically burdened, and there's a lot of people carrying a lot of devils around in their head because mm-hmm. of that. And I'm sorry for that. But, you know, it doesn't take a war to get post-traumatic stress. Right. You can be in a bad car accident or have someone beat you up for a couple of months, mm-hmm. and you'll have PTSD. Mm-hmm. So it's not the only source by any means. But, uh, you know, we, we, we Vietnam veterans, I think, share a sense of, of the futility of, of, of taking on the world trying to right wrongs that are in, that are inherent or endemic to a particular class of people, a culture, an, eth- an ethnicity. Mm-hmm. We're going to teach the Vietnamese how to have a popularly elected government, or the Arabs, or the Sunnis, or the whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, that that's beyond my ken. I think we're, 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 we're going out of, we're going beyond our reach there, but, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not, I'm not, a national leader, so I'll keep my mouth shut. All right. Well, thank, thank, thank you, thank you for those words. We, we appreciate it very much. Uh, let, let me ask you. This is kind of a traditional final question on the New Books Network, and that is, what are you working on now? What is your current book project? My, I'm going to get my dissertation published uh, from from Princeton. It's a uh, the name of it. The working title is Black Gold Gray, and it's a narrative history of African American West Pointers in the 19th century. Black Gold Gray are the 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 colors, West Point school colors, and they are the colors of the components of gunpowder. Mm-hmm. Sulfur is yellow, uh, 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 saltpeter is gray, and charcoal is black. Mm-hmm. And 
the line I had is they were their skins were black, but they were tested in the furnace at West Point and found to be made of gold and joined the long gray line and you know kind of crap like that. But you know, but it's true. <laughs> it's a, it's a wonderful story of twenty four were appointed after Civil War, after the Civil War, twelve showed up, six lasted one semester, one lasted one year. Two lasted three years, but they each repeated their freshman year, their plebe year, and three graduated. Mm-hmm. And, as, and in that entire time, and until 1949, all black cadets were silenced by white cadets, which means no white cadet would speak to a black cadet except on official business. Is that right? And what that meant was the loneliest life way up the river, no one you could talk to except the waiters in the mess hall and the grooms in the stable, maybe, who were black. But that's it. You're by yourself. And some of them, Henry O. Flipper, the first graduate, was extraordinary. He wrote a book called The Colored Cadet at West Point, where he out West Point's the West Pointers. And it's a sad history of what happened to West Pointers in the 19th century, because Flipper got run out of the Army on trumped-up charges. And those who followed him, that did not happen. And eventually, Colonel Young, who graduated in 1894, I think, or 96, ended up commanding a battalion of... Uh, a, a, a squadron. We, we, well, I'm sorry, uh, an organ, a unit. Let's say it was, mm-hmm. it was a squadron of of cavalry, where the soldiers were black, but the officers were white. In the night, we had two all black infantry and two all black uh, cavalry regiments uh, if, after the Civil War. The the ninth and tenth uh, uh, infantry and the uh, cavalry in the twentieth and twenty first and twenty second infantry. Anyway, they were all black and officered by white men. So technically, he commanded white soldiers when they went into Mexico pursuing Pancho Villa with, with uh, Pershing uh-huh. yeah, in, in wow. 1911 or 12, I think it was. So, yes, we had a white, a black officer commanding white officers. Mm-hmm. That was the first instance of that. And then then, then we had the whole, there's another 20 or 30 years of, of the, the, the uh, where racism set in hard, the black codes and in, 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 uh, uh, the Klan and so on. Uh and it wasn't until the 30s that another, in 1936, Benjamin O. Davis graduated, the first black graduate in the in the 20th century. Two had been appointed before him and dropped out. And he eventually rose to general officer. He eventually was given a fourth star by wow. Clinton, I think, after retirement. And he, he, other of his classmates, William Westmoreland, who's the commander in Vietnam, was his classmate. And William Westmoreland said, uh, to the public in a, in a laughing throwaway, oh, yeah, old Ben Davis and I, we were old buddies. Yeah, we got along great. And then ben, then they asked Ben Davis, and he said, during my entire four years at West Point, not one cadet befriended me, not one. Hmm. Wow. Okay? Wow. So that's the reality. That's amazing. And the fact that they endured that is just an extraordinary yeah, demonstration of, it is. Demonstration of, of yeah. courage and strength. I mean, wow. They said themselves, they stood on each other's shoulders, and that's the only way they could make it. Mm-hmm. So it's an extraordinary story, I think, that needs to be told and read by America. I mean, it's I it's so. easy to tell racist stories in the 20th century about lynchings and and so on. And yeah, that happened. Let's talk about some successes yeah. after the after the end of slavery. What what where did some people in our particular respected profession go to the right school, West Point, and yet face the most extraordinary mm-hmm. opposition from within, mm-hmm. and yet endure and make it? 
well, didn't happen in any big medical schools, law schools, anything like that, mm-hmm. or even 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 liberal arts schools. But mm-hmm. West Point was different. Yeah, well, it's a it's a fascinating and relevant story, and you're the right person to tell it. So we really look forward <laughs> to seeing that book, and you'll have to come back on the show when it uh, it comes out, and we can talk about it again. Okay? Absolutely. Be Absolutely. happy to do that. Absolutely. Well, Tom, thank you very much for spending time with us today. Thank you, Marshall. Absolutely. And let me tell everybody who listens to this podcast and the New Books Network generally, my name is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief, and today we've been talking with Tom Carhart about his terrific book, The Golden Fleece, High-Risk Adventure at West Point. I hope everybody has a good day. 